Welcome to New in Nashville. This is your host, Elam Freeman. I'm a commercial real estate broker and yoga instructor based in Nashville, Tennessee, and I am a Nashville native who has spent time living in Los Angeles and Washington, D.C. I have also traveled to all 50 states and visited nearly every U.S. metropolitan city bigger than Nashville. I am crazy about Nashville's growth and want natives, newcomers, and tourists to have the knowledge they need to keep up with our city's pace. Today's guest is Chris Larkins. Chris began his company, PicoSlap, in 2016 and has been the principal on five projects with a total cost of $5.5 million. He is responsible for acquisitions, financing, and negotiations. Chris has 12 years prior experience in business, including Extreme Gloss, a car care distribution startup company, which he began in 2002 and owned for 10 years, growing the company from a local market to national distribution. Chris is a member of Kiwanis, a board member of Reen, a Nashville Business Chamber member, a former consultant for the nation's largest residential roofing company, and a Martial Arts Hall of Fame inductee. Today we're here with Chris Larkin, and he is the owner and principal of PicoSlap Development, and he has been doing projects all over Nashville for the last few years, and I'm really excited to learn more about his life story and what brought him here from where he grew up in L.A. So without further ado, welcome, Chris. Thank you so much for having me, Elam. It's great to be here. Yeah, of course. Thanks for um, coming out. So to start off, I just, one of the questions that I always ask people is, when and why did you move to Nashville? So it was about 10 years ago, and my wife is from here. She's actually from about an hour east in a little town called Cookville. And uh, we met in Southern California, where I'm from. And then I convinced her to come back to uh, <laughs> here. She said, I'm not going back to Cookville, but I will do Nashville. And that, that was really it. Yeah, great. That's, it seems like um, more and more people are getting out of Cookville from what I have an aunt and uncle that are from there. And we just met one of my uncle's cousins who's a freshman at Belmont. Yeah. And I know one of the um, cross, like, best crossfitters uh rob um see all the crossfitters will throw rocks at me because i can't remember (laughs) but yes he's very big and one of the one of the best Best. from cookville tennessee putting it on the map that's right (laughs) um what were the pros and cons of moving back and why did you try to convince your wife to come here from la well, that was uh, 2008, and so real estate was through the roof. This was 2008, just before the crash. Mm-hmm. So real estate was really expensive, and we were spending, I mean, it, it was like $400,000 on a 1,000-square-foot condo in the middle of the suburbs. And so I had been doing some research on Tennessee, and I was just shocked. Like, home prices were, I, I, it was like... Um, it was like somebody telling you this lie that sounded too good to be true. <laughs> and she told me, you'll hate it. You won't like it. She loved California, you know. And, but ultimately, it was the prices that, that got me back here. And um, I think when I first came out, it was, it was I didn't feel shocked. Mm-hmm. 
But as I kind of lived here, I, I did. It kind of wore on me. I, I think I was amazed by, at the time, how few things there was to do mm-hmm. coming out of Los Angeles, unless you were into country music, which I was not. Yeah. And so I stayed at home <laughs> a lot. Um, but it's changed so much since I first got here. It's, yeah. um, it's really astonishing to, to see it, you know. It's pretty incredible just watching all the people that are coming through and yeah. from all different parts of the country. So Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I'm we're done. we are pouring in like ants. Right yes. Now. <laughs> Can't keep us out. Yeah. Um, so tell us a little bit more about your career trajectory and what were you doing prior to starting a real estate development firm and what caused you to make that pivot? Yeah. Um I started working when I was six, actually. I've always been doing something to make money since I was six. And between six and I'm 38 right now, I've probably had a total of five years of actual employment, like at a real job. Other than that, I've been doing something on my own, you know. So I actually started a company about 15 years ago, was selling car care products like polishes, waxes, things like that. And that was really out of the trunk of my car in Los Angeles. And from there, uh, it the, the Lord was good. Times were fortuitous. And it became an actual business. And I did that for a while, for about 10 years. And I had my son. And I was traveling a lot when I was doing that, you know. And it just wasn't good. And so I thought, I have to get out of this. I don't know how. And uh, God solved that by just that business just tanked. I mean, it just it crushed. So I didn't know what I was going to do. And I got on at a job uh, with a group called Mr. Roof, and I was a consultant there, you know, which was almost a glorified salesperson, basically. And uh, I had a manager that was really deep into real estate and uh, he had a very interesting kind of approach to it. And I would just pick his brain and, and ask him. His name is Jeff Kinney. And uh, so, Jeff, if you're listening, I owe a lot to you, buddy. And he would just tell me, like, this is what I'm doing. And so I stayed there for about three years. And um, uh, I had a friend of mine that invited me to come work at another job, kind of similar. And I took it. And when I was there, um, they were doing some things that I just didn't really ethically agree with, you know. And so I had this epiphany where my son, who I told everything to at the time, he was three, told me, he goes, you know, Sounds like what you're doing is kind of unethical. And uh, I was like, no, not really. And he goes, no, it is. You're lying. And I said, what do you think I should do? He says, you should just quit. I says, I can't quit. I got to feed you and there's money. And he says, it's money. The Lord will take care of the money. Just quit. And so the next day I thought, you know, I can't do something. I can't look my kid in the eye about, so I quit. And uh, my wife stays home, so I had my son. Just had a brand new daughter, house payments, and... And no money. And uh, what am I going to do? I know. Become a real estate developer. (laughs) And literally, that is what happened. And that was back in uh, end of 2015, beginning of 2016, somewhere around there. And the rest has been history thus far. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like it's so interesting to talk to different people or talk to people in real estate and all of them have such different paths Mm -hmm. into it. And there's so many different backgrounds that can really 
translate into success in real estate. Um, and there's, I think that's why teams are so important because, you know, you've got to have the creative side, but you've also got to have the finance side and, um, you know, you got to have the entrepreneurial side and people that are open and not too risk adverse. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that's a really, um, it's cool to hear how you entered in. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I agree, you know, and it's, it's such a team sport and I really got involved believing that you have to surround yourself with really smart people. And I'm fond of saying always be the dumbest person in the room. Mm -hmm. And when you're not, go find a different room. Yeah. And it's been so true. Um, you know, lots of mistakes, lots and lots of errors. I've paid the dumb tax a lot of times. <laughs> and my wife says, well, just consider this the cost to go to school. Um, but having such good people around me, uh, I really can't even describe how valuable that that really is. Yeah, you know, absolutely, absolutely. So, can you tell us why the name Pico Slop? So that goes back to my son again. Uh, he's six now, seven yeah. in two weeks. Okay. And when he was three, about that same time, he had an imaginary friend named Pico Slap. And he talked about this character constantly. <laughs> he had a whole community around him. There was Pico Dog and Pico this guy and Pico Jack and Pico. And Pico Slap was like, you know, mayor of this whole community. It's been on for about eight months. Uh -huh. I thought it was a really cool word. And I thought, you know, I told my wife, I said, I'm going to start a business, another business, and I'm going to call it that. And so when I started the real estate, I did. And I, I think I, 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 I gravitated toward it because my son is very bold and he's very creative at the same time. And he's very analytical, which is kind of strange to have that combination. And I thought, you know, if you can bring bold creativity that underwrites well, mm -hmm. then you can do some pretty cool things in real estate. There you go. Right. That's awesome. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, I've been wondering that for a while. I'm sure. <laughs> do you get that question a lot? It's a great, it's a great conversation. <laughs> My wife says, you can't call your company that. I said, look, one of two things will happen. Either A, it'll be an outrageous success, at which point it'll be cool, like Apple is a computer. And that's yeah. cool. Or it'll be a total failure and nobody will know or care anyway. So I'm going to call it that. Well, it's so much better than... The people, no offense, but that call them, you know, their company, Chris LLC. I know. <laughs> like, can we get a little more creative? Not going to happen. <laughs> At least you use your initials or not something. Not going to happen. Her, her, her cousin, who is a very successful builder down in Brentwood, has a company called Avenue Builders. I said, I can't call it Avenue Builders, really? <laughs> you know, yeah. not going to happen. Not going to happen. <laughs> that's funny um yeah well i love that it's something i've been wondering for uh a little bit and i'm glad to finally know the answer to go. it yeah. so why did you start out in residential and what has caused you to recently start investing on the commercial side uh i think like a lot of things it's what you just kind of stumble into you know um i had heard about ren real estate investors of nashville just kind of in the street, I guess, for lack of a better term. And it's primarily residential there. And so I started attending groups there, you know. And that's where I would ask questions and learn and what's going on and so forth. And so residential was just the first thing that I was exposed to. And uh, I fell in love with it. And I'll probably can always continue to do residential. 
I fell in love with it though because it was really neat to see the impact of residential real estate on neighborhoods and areas. Mm-hmm. You know, whether that was lowering crime, mm-hmm. making it family friendly, just totally transforming the landscape of an area. You know, you go into certain locations and you have this feel right. when you go in. And I feel like I'm in and fill the blank in Brentwood, Germantown, Los Angeles, whatever. And the residential real estate has a massive impact on that, you know. Um, and then I also liked it just because of the safety of the asset class in general, typically. Um, commercial began to really interest me, though, because I saw the impact that commercial has on neighborhoods as well. And I kind of realized that you need both. It's like the left and right hand in order to fully develop out a specific area. And if the two can kind of work in tandem together, you can really begin to actually develop um, that location. Um, And then, of course, I think financially it makes sense having both asset classes working together because they're always moving at different paces uh, depending on where the market is at. Right. Cool. So how do you go about finding your investors and what are the most important questions to ask prior to taking on investor funds? Hmm, let's see. Well, the first deal that I had, I went about finding investors. Anyone that would give me $5 was my (laughs) investor. I had no criteria at that time. Um, Today, actually, there's a lot of word of mouth. Um, I, I happened to come into the market at a great time. And so I think that uh, a very large portion of what's whatever success that I have had has been due to a, a, just a very fortuitous market, you know. And so sometimes it will make you look smarter than you actually are. Um, so because of that, people have made, you know, good money on good deals working with me. And there's really more capital available than there are good deals at this point. And so a lot of investors that I work with just come from uh, word of mouth. Um, I've done some seminars, actually, specifically about equity investing, not for the purpose of getting investors, but really just as I would talk to people or whatnot, there was a real need as people just did not understand the process. And out of that, you know, I like to invest with you. But I realized like very early on, though, whether you take in five dollars or five hundred thousand dollars from somebody, as soon as somebody gives you that check or wires those funds, it's a weighty and heavy thing. Uh, the first deal that I did do, I needed it was like a hundred thousand, hundred. It was a hundred and forty-four thousand dollars. Never forget that. And all I could think about was I need to get this money because I can get this deal and it'll work. When I finally got the money, it was a horrible feeling. I thought, what have I done? Oh, my goodness. You know, how this really has to work. And I think for people that have never taken on investment dollars, that's kind of the goal is to get it. But you don't realize that, you know, when you take that money, there's a very heavy responsibility uh, that goes way beyond the documents and LLCs. And it just goes down to I've got the time and effort as represented in these dollars, and I'm expected to take care of it and to return it with more on top, regardless of whatever happens. So that can be, you know, that's that's heavy sometimes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure it's 
uh, a great responsibility. So. It is. It is. Um, how does your company handle branding and social media, and how has that evolved over time? I have never had to think about it literally until the last <laughs> eight weeks. And it's because it's a startup. You yeah. know, uh, the company is two and a half years old, almost three years old. And so it's like that first couple of years, it's just, there's so much to learn. There's so much to do. And I, I had more coming at me than I could really learn or, or, or really deal with. And I knew too, I needed time to really develop what was the brand that I wanted to create. I knew I didn't know at the time when I first started and I knew it would take a couple of years. And about eight weeks ago, I finally came to the culmination of this is the essence of what it is that I want to deliver. And this is what I want from my brand. I think it's very easy to say this is sort of the idea or the image that I want to put out there. But you have to have something that you want back from your brand as well, too. And having come to that reality, now I'm really at a place where I'm ready to launch a strong social media and branding campaign uh, to get in front of the right people and yeah. to really portray the image that really is uh, what the company is about. You know, Do you think you'll end up partnering with someone to kind of handle some of that? Or right now, are you just handling it all yourself? I'm handling nothing myself. Right okay. now, it's purely thinking, thought, and really designing the strategy. Uh -huh. I will absolutely work with somebody. Mm -hmm. um, I have learned... My realtor, who's amazing, has a great phrase. She says, stay in your lane. Yeah. <laughs> and so if I tried to brand myself, I would say peanut butter and everybody would hear chocolate. And that's <laughs> not what needs to happen. You know? Right. Absolutely. Yeah, I know. It's it's kind of a crazy thing. that it, I was just talking about this with someone yesterday. But Instagram, for instance, like used to be such a personal like everybody has their personal brand but now it's turned into such a business thing and more people are really more focusing on for their business and if they do have a personal instagram usually they are kind of the face of their business and mm -hmm. what's bringing in the money so right. it is interesting to see oh and it's so change. overwhelming to me too it i'm is. like if i was gonna do this that's like a whole other job i'd have to try to learn and comprehend and no, no. Yeah. I, I need to work with somebody that that's what they do. It's like every week they're rolling out something different. It's oh, it's, it's incredible. IGTV yeah. and the stories. Uh, I, I, Instagram Live, I can't oh, keep up. Yeah. No, I'm the guy that would be using something that was like six months or a year or six years ago was cool. And I'm like, hey, look, I'm, I'm on MySpace, yeah. you know? Why is nobody following me? Where is everybody? No, yeah. I don't need to be doing yeah. that. Absolutely not. I totally agree. I completely understand why it's a full-time job. I think Absolutely. I've even heard that some people are majoring in it in college, which wow, is what? crazy. Wow. But I can understand why. I can too. I could, I could have used it. a minor in that at least. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> um, what impact, both positive and negative, do you see technology having on the real estate world? Hmm. Uh. Well, let's start with, uh, we'll start with negative, negative, I guess. Um, yeah, people always talk about technology sort of replacing the human touch, right? And there is a negative, I think, for buyers and also for renters because 
they're using technology more and more to really make decisions and specifically about purchasing the home or renting the home or renting the commercial space. But there's a lot of information behind that decision that can only be translated or transmitted through a person, yeah. an agent, right? So if they go online and they go to Zillow or, or, or whatever and they look and they say, wow, this is a beautiful piece of property. I'm going to go ahead. I'm going to buy it. And all of the questions are answered. What year was it built? How many bed? How many baths? And so forth. But when they go to the property, they actually have no idea the right questions to be asking unless they've bought 15 or 20 of these different things. Um, and so I think not having that human touch mm-hmm. will, will correct itself at some point, but there's going to be, there's pain in between the time of today <clears throat> and the time when people are actually savvy and there's a system set up <clears throat> that can maybe deal with replacing so much of the human touch, you know? Um, I think there's probably a lot more positive than, than I would see negative. Um, one thing is in the underwriting process, which is probably not something that most people think about. But right now, the way that valuation happens is so bad. <laughs> it's so unscientific, yeah. right? And whole developments are done or not done based upon a very unscientific method <clears throat> of valuating property. And, you know, specifically, you have appraisers, which are great. And they go out and look at a piece of property, try to get as much information as they think they can, and then they guess what they think the value is. And then the underwriter and the lender go back, they look at the deal, and they don't have any real kind of algorithm. They've got a few ratios or things, and they say, yeah, we like it, or no, we we really don't. And I see technology, hopefully, as being something that can come in, make it a lot more scientific, make it a lot more algorithmic, and design a more efficient system, which stabilizes values and creates an actual value system that's not quite so subjective. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, Technology is affecting every industry, and... In, in real estate, I see on the broker's side, there's so much data out there, but it's so much of it is inaccurate because the data is only as good as what people are putting into it. Mm. And you can't rely on any one person to capture all the data. And so it's just kind of mismatched. And mm. I think people are using that as a crutch and thinking that they can go broker any deal anywhere in the country and they um, are forgetting the value of the on-the-ground knowledge. And I just, I really don't see it in an industry ever being something that, or word of mouth isn't a mm. very valuable tool. Well, I mean, how many times have you gone on the LoopNet and it's been 53,000 square feet and, <laughs> you know, blah, blah, blah. And it's, wait, it was 5,000 square feet. And, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's not on a hill, it's in a ditch. What is this? Right. I definitely <laughs> drove by yesterday. And was, exactly. <laughs> walked it with on my own two feet, and it was not what this is saying. So. Absolutely. I also think, though, too, that you know, being in the industry, like any other industry, it, it, we're at a very uh, we're at a crossroads time. I think where technology is moving fast, and it's not on an even trajectory of increase. Yeah. It's getting 
faster and faster and faster, right? And so people that are unable to adapt, everything from the development side, which I see designing homes, I mean, you're building a development and now you have to consider, do we build a parking structure or not if we intend to hold this for 20 years and pay $30,000 a parking space? Yeah. Or do we bite the bullet today and cut that in half because we believe people aren't going to be driving as much and then do something else with the space later on? I mean, it's... It's it's so much that's involved in really determining that, or as agents, you know, really figuring out, okay, technology, all right, am I going to utilize social media? Am I going to, how am I going to work with text messaging? Do they want to email? I mean, there's all of these various means and the people that are able to shift and really sort of stay ahead of the curve, I think are going to come out as rock stars, but the folks that are like, you know, heels in the ground and Historically, real estate has been slow to adapt <laughs> to technology. Really slow. <laughs> no really kidding. Really slow. Yeah. But it's happening. Yeah. It's happening. It really is. And it's either you can go with it and do your best to learn it, or you can run the other direction. And I see a lot of people just kind of uh, wrapped in fear with mm. how they think real estate's changing and on the commercial side how retail especially is dying and all this stuff. And it's like, no, you just embrace the changes. I mean, mm. if you dive deep into it and you see what's happening in the larger markets, which what's happening in the larger markets, in my opinion, always translates into the smaller markets. Eventually you see that it's just changing and it's becoming more experiential, but people are still social creatures mm. and they want to go out. And I don't see a day where everyone's just going to be sitting in their house by themselves, or if that happens, it's going to be a very depressing day. Absolutely. <laughs> so, absolutely. Um, do you do you plan to expand your portfolio? And if so, would you expand within Nashville or to other cities and states? Yeah. Um, so when I when I started, I started at zero. I had four hundred bucks when 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 it started, and then it's gone from zero to done or doing about $15 million in projects and then own about 40 different pieces of like income producing property. And the first two years, like I say, for me has really been proof of concept, develop the idea and see if it works. And thus far it does. Um, and so right now though, my plan is really to stay highly focused on Nashville and frankly in the downtown area of Nashville uh, with a little light touch on Southern California. <laughs> I love it, and it's an excuse to uh, to go out there. But there's just so much opportunity right now in this city. And people that are from here, they see the prices and they, they call them expensive. <laughs> but man, they don't get it. You yeah. know, in my hometown, the idea of living in a German town, 60 seconds outside of downtown, Brand new, three thousand square feet for eight or nine hundred thousand dollars is unbelievable. Yeah, in brownstone in California. <laughs> so when you go on and you're looking at these homes, say a million dollar home, they are advertised as under a thousand dollars a square foot. This is the selling. This is the value add. You can get this house for less than a thousand dollars a square foot. And we can't even wrap our mind around those kinds of prices. Right. So there's so much leg room left in the commercial and the residential side downtown. I think it's going to be a while before I would really focus anywhere else. Yeah. You know. 
I always say it's all relative when everyone's complaining about the traffic here. I'm just like, oh, come on. <laughs> I, I, oh, it took me 20 minutes. Really? And you got further than 20 feet. Okay. Yeah, exactly. And that was probably between the hours of 5 and 6 p.m. or 8 and 9 a.m. Like, exactly. <laughs> if you woke up a little earlier or stayed at work a little longer, then you're probably never going to face a traffic jam in Absolutely. Nashville. So, yeah. yeah, it's, I just think everyone gets in their bubble and it's hard to see outside. So, that's why it's so important to travel and see other parts of the world. To, Keep it yes. all in perspective. Yes, most definitely. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about a day in your life and what that kind of looks like for you. A day in my life. Um, I get up every morning at between 4.45 and 5 o'clock. If I sleep in, it's about 5.15. Um, I always spend about 5 or 10 minutes just kind of clearing my mind, getting my mind ready for the day. I always go to the gym five days a week, sometimes six, but always five days a week. I'm there about 5.30. My wife gets back from the gym at 5 a.m. So she wow. typically wakes me up when she gets back. <clears throat> and, you know, I love the gym because it really does help to kind of separate from the day that I'm about to get involved with, you know. And uh, I always am sure that when I come back, the morning time is family time. I think like in the 50s, it was dinner time as family. For us, it's morning and, and breakfast, yeah. you know. So when I come back, I'm with my kids. We walk the dogs every morning. We have breakfast together every morning. And then I take my son to school uh, every morning. I always get a call or a text or something, but I never answer the phone, not when we're going to school. And he knows it, you know. Um, and, you know, when I first started, I would work until like, 10 o'clock at night, 11 o'clock at night, because that's what everybody did. And my wife said, you can't do that. And I said, I have to. We have to eat. She said, you won't have anybody to eat with if you keep doing that. So I came up with this voicemail, and I said, okay, well, look, I'm going to do this like a regular job. I'm going to do it like a 9 to 5, and I'll and that's it, you know. So on my voicemail, it basically says, if you call me and it's after 5 o'clock, uh, I'm dead. And if you call me on Friday after five, I'm dead through the weekend and I'll come back and I'll talk to you on Monday when I come back to life. And I really try to have to live by that. Yeah. So what that means is therefore throughout my day, I have to be very efficient. And, and if you look at my calendar, it's broken up into segments, you know, and there's really, there's no, there's no downtime. Um, and so I'm always allocating time specifically toward deal analysis, financial analysis, market analysis. I have a set time that I utilize for meetings that I try to keep in. Um, and then emailing even. You know, I know a lot of people get swallowed up in it. I have. <laughs> and uh, I set a standard a, a while back with myself and then my in-house team. I said, here's a new rule. Nobody sends any more than an hour a day on emails, yeah. no matter what. Unless I have a personal assistant and that's all she does is that you keep doing what you do. And at first, it was like, oh, it can't be done. It's impossible. So what do you mean? We're not here doing emailing. We're here yeah. developing property, you know. Right. And that's what I do. And it's yeah. 45 minutes, maybe an hour at the most. I go through all of my emails, text messages, voicemails. And then I'm, I'm on to the things that I've mentioned. 
And recently, I've, I've realized it's very important to begin including larger and larger amounts of time specifically towards planning and, and not really being caught up in the have to or the right nows. And it's helped me. It's helped me to expand my thinking and, um, and I think create a better atmosphere and the foundation to really grow. Yeah. It's time allocation is so important. And I think it's something that gets so overrun. And even if you are not necessarily working on a team or you're working, or you're an entrepreneur working more solely, I think it's so easy to get caught up in, well, this person is responding to me immediately or you know, they're, if I don't respond within an hour, they're sending me a text and to get caught up in this, like you have to be on all the time. Mm. And I really think <laughs> there's a lot to be said for, um, taking time to focus and really unplug, not necessarily unplug from your job, but just unplug from technology within the scope of your work to focus and, develop something else that otherwise you're going to be just getting bombarded if you can't just turn that do not disturb on sometimes so I think it's so key you know one of the things that I started doing is I look at my day and I I write it down Mm -hmm. what is not not what do I have to do because you don't actually have to do anything nothing but what is the specific outcome that I am looking for in my day and it's typically no more than three things. Yeah. I mean, if it's like five, six, seven things, there's no way that all of those things are that relevant. Right. So it's like three things. And if I can't write those three things in one or two or maybe three sentences, and I really don't know what I'm doing that day. Yeah. And I look at that and I say, okay, what is the outcome that I really want? And uh, why am I going after that outcome? And, and how am I going to get it? Tony Robbins is a big fan of that. There's a lot of just really proactive and successful people that kind of follow that that train of thought. And it it just, it focuses mm-hmm. so much. And then I go and I look at my day and I say, okay, well, this is exactly what I have to do to get to those outcomes. And I go through my day and I get to the end and I take 15 minutes and I review and I look back. Well, did I hit those outcomes? Yes, no. If not, why not? How can I fix that tomorrow and so forth? Right. And it just keeps you focused yeah. and free at the same yeah. time because you can run 100% with what you need to do. For sure. Yeah. You really have to take responsibility for your own schedule and all that other pe- people dictate it. Or 100%. You'll get to the end of the day and be like, I didn't achieve anything that I had on my to-do list. Absolutely. So, yeah, it's neat. Um, so in terms of your favorite Nashville outings and what have been your favorite restaurants that you've tried, what can you recommend to the audience for that? Uh, favorite outing is the Parthenon. Okay. I love it. Yeah. I, I just, oh my goodness, I love it. It was one of the, it was the first place my wife took me to when we moved out here because yeah. she knows I, I like history and classic art and I love like beautiful parks. Yeah. And, it's one of the most beautiful parks that I've been to anywhere. Yeah. It's it's really great. Um, favorite restaurants. Nashville is was not good at restaurants when I first got <laughs> here. It was really bad at restaurants. But now it's it's getting good. Um, so I've got a few, right? I've got like, I guess what you would consider higher end yeah. restaurants. And then I've got not so higher end restaurants. So... 
uh, kind of on the lower class, but great food side. Uh, I just recently discovered Hugh Baby's Burgers over off of Charlotte. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. It's, I feel like it's like the in and out of Nashville. I know. <laughs> I posted about this on Instagram. I'm like, look, I don't want to be sacrilegious. And those that are from L.A. know what I mean. But it's so good. It's like, you don't want to say in and out because it's like stepping on toes. But it's like in and out kind of but for Nashville. So it's it's really good. Slim and Huskies is amazing. Yeah. Um, best pizza in Nashville. I told those guys it's not even pizza. This is this is something else. Foo's Kitchen is great. I love that. They have they have really stellar food. Um, Germantown Cafe. I like that. That's that's really good as well too. Um, let me think here. Sushi's sushi's okay in Nashville. It's not. Have you been to Sunda? Mm-mm, okay, that's know. that's my new favorite, and it's kind of more of an Asian fusion. But they definitely have quite a few sushi rolls on the menu. But the level of service is better than anything I've really? received in Nashville. They're really? out of Chicago, but highly recommend. Okay, I'll have to check it so, out. Eastland Cafe it. is another good one yeah. as well too. Um, I love Kitchen Notes in the Omni. Uh-huh. Uh huh. I, I that's kind of my go to for like lunch and, and breakfast and stuff. So yeah. Yeah, Nashville is, is coming it's along. Good. There's a new one over at the uh, JW Marriott on the 32nd floor. Yeah, Michael Mina's restaurant. Yeah, I haven't got. I was there. I was there yesterday, but it wasn't. It was like four o'clock. So okay. just I don't drink, but the bar was open. We went up, looked around. But I will be back to eat there. Yeah, I, yeah, I got to eat there. Yeah, he can, he can cook, <laughs> and it's a beautiful view. Yeah, for sure. I know it's definitely on my list too. I've been. Uh, thinking I'd probably just go grab a glass of wine because it's I've heard it's pretty pricey. <laughs> but it probably let me know is. if it's worth I it. I will. I will <laughs> let you know. Because <laughs> I'm a sucker for a good meal too. But um yeah, I've been another thing, I know you're a fellow kombucha lover. Yes. And um I've been recently noticing that more and more places are putting kombucha on top on their menu hmm. and different coffee shops and then some bars too, which is really nice because feel like in real estate it's just happy after happy hour after happy hour right. and sometimes I just would rather not get an alcoholic beverage but kombucha is a nice alternative so I was I have a friend that writes for Nashville Fit magazine and I've been meaning to reach out to her and be like can you do an article on where to find kombucha at bars because yeah, no I doubt. know there's I know um eight uh what's the one um the tap room on 8th Avenue South mm-hmm. has it, always has kombucha on tap. And then there's several coffee shops, Frothy Monkey, that also has kind of a bar program. They have it on tap. And Dose Coffee, which is really close to me, mm-hmm. just got kombucha on tap. So really? I'm, I'm glad to see this trend starting to slowly but surely seep into Nashville. Yeah, man. I'll be out there uh, on at Dose Coffee on... I think Wednesday, Wednesday or Thursday, I'm meeting an architect out there. So I'm going to have to try yes. it. That's great. Get their kombucha. I know they have it at the one on Murphy Road. I'm not sure if they're in East Nashville, but I would imagine they do. Yeah, I'll, just, I'll be at the one on Murphy oh, Road. Oh, perfect. So, yeah, yeah, yeah try it out. They said they just, it's right across from where I live, and they said uh, they just added it like a week ago. So Wow. Yeah, try it out. It's really I will. Funny. Yeah, I'm a big fan. Kombucha is great. I know. I'm trying to remember how we first found it, but it's weird, you know, when you first find it, it's like, this is how we make it. I don't know, man. The mother (laughs) and this. uh. I know. I have some friends that are in the making side, and they're like, it's so inexpensive. It's so cheap. And then I go to the store, and it's like, 
I'm like, I paid how much? But I don't know if I'm that intense to start making it yet. I know everyone always says it's inexpensive, cheap, easy to do. But I'm like, eh, you know, yeah. I'll just buy it from you. I'll yeah, give me exactly. a good deal because it's inexpensive. So right. give me a good deal on it. You know? Yeah, no, I totally agree. Totally. Um, so any advice you would give your listeners who want to have a career in real estate development or start their own venture? Don't do it. Um, <laughs> think it through. So the very first thing that I tell everybody is you must be prepared to go broke. If you are not prepared to go broke, do something else. Once you recognize that you are prepared to go broke, then do your homework. Get a mentor. Go work for somebody else. I didn't have the luxury of working for somebody else because I had to eat. I went to work Monday and had to eat something on Tuesday. But looking back, if I could have done it differently, I would have definitely said, go work for somebody that's in the field that you're wanting to be in and learn. Stay with them. And you'll know you've really learned well when you can go to them and say, hey, I've got a deal. You want to partner with me on the deal? And they say, absolutely, I'll partner with you on it. That's a great way, I think, to get involved in in development. And, And I would say now is probably a poor time to get started in development because we're so high up on the cycle you might have another two or three years left you know in in this but it's really easy to get caught up and and to make mistakes so i would say if possible figure out another way to put a few dollars together and get involved when things start to start to go south yeah and there's some real opportunity at that time absolutely you gotta be there with the cash when no one else is. You, you, I mean, you you really do. You know, that's that's primarily what what I'm focusing on at this point. This is all nice, well, and good, but this isn't really the game at this point. You know, this is a period where anybody is going to make quick money. But if you can be here for twenty or thirty years, mm-hmm. this is dependent upon going through lots and lots of cycles and really succeeding during the downtime. And so you have to stack cash and you have to shake a lot of hands and really create the faithful relationships with a lot of people that know, man, this guy's going to deliver time in and time out no matter what. Because when the downtime comes and it will come, you got to have some money and you got to have friends with money and you got to really know what you're doing. I I think the other thing that I would say is be a student of your craft. Mm -hmm master the numbers, master the concept of your market. And your market are your consumers, your investors, your bankers, and then also your professionals that work with you. You have to understand the system and how it works and how it operates. And if you can do that, you're probably ahead of 90% of most people um, that call themselves a developer or, or or whatever in in real estate, you're ahead of it anyway, and you'll probably you'll probably do fair enough. Yeah, no, it's so important to have a team and just to have people on your speed dial that you can call that are professionals in so many different realms. Because development, I mean, you interface with so many different issues in development, and whether it's on the construction side or the legal side, and just really having those allies kind of in your back pocket that you can call at any time of the day and say, hey, I got to get your 
you know, trustworthy opinion on this mm-hmm. is so important. The shoes tell it all. So to that point, sometimes I'm like Mr. Rogers. So I've got in my trunk of my car, I have my on-site shoes that I wear, <laughs> and I might finish on-site, and I have to change those and put on my, I'm in a bank meeting now shoes, <laughs> I have to change those and put on, I'm meeting another investor shoes, and it does. You have to wear, as someone says, you know, what does a developer do? And if I meet people or at a party or something, I say, what do you, I'm a real estate developer. They say, oh, you're a realtor. Uh, could you sell my house? I say, no, I'm a real estate developer. Yeah, yeah, but you're a realtor, right? You can, yes, I'm a realtor. I cannot sell your house, though, because I don't sell anybody's houses but my own. <laughs> oh, okay, you're a bad realtor. But it's really hard to kind of explain, well, right. you know, what is it that you actually do? Yeah. And you wear a lot of hats, a lot of hats. And there's a lot of juggling that goes on. And you can be really good at one thing, but bad at something else. And if you don't know that, you're going to sink. Yeah. You know, really, really bad. It's it's going to hurt. Yeah. But if you know your weaknesses and you've got them and you're able to team with other people, and it doesn't necessarily mean a formal partnership, but you're a team player with other people, yeah, you'll you're, you have a much stronger uh, chance of success in that case. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for coming out today and absolutely. coming on the podcast. This is a great blast. discussion, it's and great. I've learned a lot, and um, look forward to continuing to see your journey as you move forward in development here in Nashville and maybe a little bit in Southern California and yes, beyond. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. Yeah, of course. Please reach out to share your experiences with us by emailing newinnashvillepodcast at gmail.com. You can also sign up for our mailing list and access our social media at www.newinnashvillepodcast.com. If you enjoyed the show, please review and subscribe on iTunes and refer our podcast to a friend today. Thank you to Jared Anderson of Evergreen Productions for producing and engineering our podcast. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you next time. The music in this episode is provided by Carrie Ann Larson. She is a singer-songwriter who strives to write songs that people hear their own stories in. You can find her music, including her latest single, Fairweather Friend, on all digital platforms. Thank you.